Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we look at the resignation of Ottawa's police chief under fierce criticism of his handling of the parliamentary blockade less than three weeks after that convoy rolled into the nation's capital. What went so wrong and why? We look into the brave new world of pet cloning. Who is seeking it out? How much does it cost? And what exactly is the end result? But first, Ottawa announced today it will begin lifting the latest round of COVID-19-related border restrictions at the end of this month. Good news for the struggling tourism industry and for Canadians looking to travel again. We find out what you need to know before you go abroad. Speaking of moving on, some welcome news today for Canada's tourism industry. And any of you eager to travel again, Ottawa moved to start lifting COVID-19-related border restrictions. As of the end of the month, vaccinated travellers will no longer need a PCR test to enter the country and avoiding travel for non-essential purposes is no longer the government's official recommendation. Here's Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos. Travelers will now have the option of using either a negative COVID-19 rapid antigen test or a molecular PCR test to meet pre-entry requirements. To be valid, the COVID-19 antigen test must be authorized by the country, the country in which it was purchased and must be administered by a laboratory, healthcare entity or telehealth service. All that to say, no more expensive PCR tests. Uh, in announcing the new travel policies, Duclos said the peak of the Omicron variant has passed and that after two years of following public health measures, don't we know this, Canadians know what to do to stay safe. It is certainly good news for the Canadian tourism industry, news they've been waiting for after another very tough winter so far. Joining me now is Beth Potter, President and CEO of the Tourism Association of Canada. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ben. So I gather this is a day you'd been waiting for for at least a little while. Uh, what what changes were announced and uh, and how happy are you about them? So, yeah, this is a good day, um, uh, you know, better, better than yesterday anyway. Um, so what we heard today is that uh, travelers coming into Canada won't require a PCR test prior uh, to getting on their flight or coming across the border. And this is a good step in the right direction. Um, we know that uh, the PCR test is expensive, um, has been hard to find, and certainly um, there's been uh, a lack of consistency in how quickly you can get your test results. So the fact that it's not required anymore is is a really good step forward. Um, you will still need to, for the time being anyway, uh, need to have a rapid antigen test um, within 24 hours before um, coming into Canada. Uh, but you can do that um, at one of the, you know, like a local pharmacy um, or a local, you know, walk-in clinic. Uh, you can't use, use your own home kit. So if you were able to get one, you know, from, you know, your kid's school or what have you, you can't use that, but you can uh, go to a pharmacy, um, like, a, you know, if you're in the States going to a Walgreens or a, a CVS and, and use the pharmacy there. The other thing, and really important as we are only about a month away from March, break is that children under 12 uh, no longer need to be tested, don't have to be vaccinated, and don't have to have the 14-day quarantine when they come back home. So that's a really good news as well. What sort of impact have these measures, I mean, we know why we brought them in, but what sort of measures have these impacts or what sort of impacts have these measures had uh, over the past little while? 
Well, you know, we were on um, a recovery trajectory um, and then, of course, Omicron hit and um, everything shut down again. And that was devastating. Um, to give you an example of how hard our sector was hit, uh, our January employment numbers were as bad as they were in April of 2020. So that just gives you a sense of, you know, how devastating it was. So there must be some optimism now that this will at least be a better spring than it was a winter. Yes. Um, And and it is another part of the announcement today that is important too. And that is that um, as of March 1st, all airports that were able to, that, that, that used to um, welcome international flights will be allowed to have international flights come back into them. So, you know, up until now, we've had a very limited number. Um, and, uh, and so that has had an impact on, you know, international visitors accessing Canada as well. So we're really pleased to see that and that part of the announcement. Now, I know these come into effect at the end of February. Is that right? Yes, yeah, some come into effect February twenty eighth, some March first. Uh, you just have to, you know, know your your uh, your dates. But as they're a day apart, it's not not too big of a deal. <laughs> how quickly or how slowly does the industry, for instance, the airlines, uh, move to take into consideration these uh, these changes? So everybody is ready to go. Um, what we will be. Uh, looking for are those bookings. So now that we can get out and message, um, you know, travelers that Canada is uh, ready to welcome them back, um, it will it will be interesting to see the spike in bookings um, that we're projecting. Um, you know, we're talking to our colleagues at the Association of Canadian Travel Agents, and they're telling us that uh, bookings will start to go up immediately based on what's happened earlier in the pandemic. And the airlines uh, and other modes of transportation tell us the same thing. Where are we looking? Where would you be looking to to see that spike? Where do you think... Um there's a lot of demand for, for tourism to Canada right now. Well, we're really hoping to see, um, you know, as we kind of finish out our winter, uh, we really hope to see, you know, the ski areas uh, get a lot of attention. Um, and then, of course, we're looking to see those summer vacations get booked. Um, but as importantly, um, we really hope to see business travel start to come back. And that is you know, an important segment of our industry. Um, we know that uh, there's a lot of uh, business meetings and, uh, and conferences and trade shows that have you know, been canceled over the last two years. And uh, you know, we're really wanting to see them come back into, uh, into being in 2022. So these are, th- these are all signals to us that uh, we're on our way to rebuilding. What would be the next few steps then? What, what, are, what are we still waiting for in terms of in terms of the rules? I, I guess it would really just be the, uh, getting rid of the tests altogether for people coming in. Well, getting rid of the tests altogether is going to be, uh, you know, kind of a, the important um, last barrier to travel. And then we really need to, um, as an industry, but also we need to see the, the federal government really start to talk about the fact that it's safe to travel. Um, you know, that's one of the things that as an industry, we started tackling 
uh, within week one of the pandemic, really looking at what are those health and hygiene protocols that need to be put in place to ensure that, um, you know, that we're, we're, we're keeping the mitigation of the virus uh, low. And so our industry has been all over that. And they have um, been putting those protocols in place um, protocols that have been vetted through, you know, ministries of health and local public health authorities, but also that ha- that stand up against global standards for our industry. Um, and now we need to get the word out. Um, now that you know, as, as government starts to talk about it's safe to travel again, yes, get out and travel. We as an industry also need to be out there telling the world that um, that we're ready to welcome them back. And you know, thank you. Feel comfortable doing that. Beth Potter, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, with the border restrictions being eased, making it easier, less expensive to return to this country, you may already be searching for a place to go and a good price. So what do you need to know? Joining me now is Claire Newell, owner of Travel Best Bets and a travel expert and journalist with some advice. Welcome to the show, Claire. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's actually a very happy day in my world, I have to admit. I would expect, I'm, I'm wondering just how fast um, people out there, I know spring break is coming up. Uh, what does this mean for people leaving the country? And uh, how quickly do you think people are going to want to start traveling? Well, it's interesting because there's been two of the two biggest hurdles, I would say, was the advisory to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada. And that's going to be lifted on February the 28th. But the other was the return to Canada, that expensive PCR or other molecular test that has to be done within 72 hours. So that's been changed to an antigen that needs to be done within 24 hours of your return. Uh, flight back to Canada. And, you know, it just makes it so much more affordable. Antigens are actually given by given free by a lot of different hotels and resorts and cruise lines and things like that. So if you have to end up paying, it's really anywhere between 20 and $50. So a lot cheaper that than the 150 per person PCR test. Yeah, it was I had friends, obviously, who'd been away over the past several months and they found it incredibly expensive to come home. If you're traveling with a family to have them all tested, it was really getting pricey. Yeah. And it's tough. It's super cumbersome. You know, you get the test at a lab and then you have to wait 24 to 48 hours to get the test results back. And if it's a little bit longer, you're worried you're, Oh, is it getting too close to my flight with an antigen test? You have it done within 24 hours of your flight, but you get the results after you do it in about 15, 30 minutes tops. So it it makes it a lot easier. Now you asked me, when did it start to get busy? You would think that it would just be today, but that's actually not the case. So mid-January, we started to see people kind of get over their fear of Omicron. And that was partly because so many people had had it. So we saw the phones start to get busy mid-January. But the real kicker was last Friday when there were rumors of these travel restrictions starting to ease and that there was, you know, this coming announcement. So it was interesting because I looked at pricing and I I was looking for a girlfriend of mine and her family, and she was interested in doing either Puerto Vallarta or Maui. And so I looked at both and for between Friday and today, the Vallarta package is all up on the date she wanted by $300 per person. So I can tell you one thing, if there's any piece of advice in all of this, first of all, use a travel professional to, to, to guide you through the process. But the other is if you see something you like, 
book it sooner rather than later if it's for imminent travel. The reason I say imminent, like if it's for spring break or before April to a sun destination and you see a deal just, you know, that you like, you know, it, it will only go up from here. The, the reason I don't say longer is that so many airlines have actually not been in the system. We've had such tough travel restrictions that a lot of the airlines around the world have chosen not to bring flights to Canada for, for, for good reason. Even our Canadian airlines have consolidated flights. So this will give time uh, because part of this announcement on February the 28th also uh, lifts that ban on international flights for all Canadian airports. So international air can actually start to resume on February 28th at all of the airports across the country. So the more flights in the marketplace for Canadians, the better. So we'll certainly could see things like trips to Europe and so on start to get a little bit less expensive as the, as the year progresses. Well, I'm hoping so because my son is doing a university exchange in Helsinki and his one-way flight from Vancouver to Helsinki when he left in the beginning of January was $1,500 Canadian one-way, which is a lot. Um, So I'm really hoping that, you know, in the coming weeks when he needs to come home sometime in April, there'll be a lot cheaper, but there will be much more choice in the marketplace. I'm speaking with Claire Newell, owner of Travel Best Bets. We're talking about Canada lifting uh, some border restrictions today as of the end of the month and what impact that'll have on your ability to travel and the deals. So obviously your advice is if you see something you like, especially in the near term for spring break or in the next few months, best to grab it now because prices are only going one way up. Um, What should we know still though before we go? Because it's still not quite like it was back in January of 2020. No, it's definitely not what it was pre-COVID. There are a couple of things that I'm getting, you know, I've had lots of questions along the way, but because of these announcements right now, I'm getting different questions. And one of them is, um, can I still use a RT lamp or a PCR that I bought ahead of time? You know, the portable self-administered ones. You absolutely can. And those molecular tests can still be done within that 72-hour window of coming back. If you choose to do an antigen, that's where you have to do it within the 24 hours. Land borders are not exempt. So if you're going across the border, even just, you know, to just for an afternoon or to watch a Seahawks game or something, you would need to have an antigen done in the US before crossing the border back into Canada. I do know that a lot of people are really excited about the fact that we're moving also back to random PCR testing on arrival. So just, you know, since Omicron hit um, in mid-December, they started doing across Canada at all of the airports, virtually 50% of people coming in were being actually tested after having a PCR or other molecular tests that they paid for pre-flight. So they were having two molecular tests within three days, which was just, it's just so cumbersome and so expensive for the Canadian government because they're paying for the ones on arrival at the Canadian airport. So they are moving back to what was they were doing before Omicron hit, and that's just random testing on arrival. So don't think that when you land that you're not going to have a test. You may. And they were the randoms are sitting at around, depending on the airport, one in 15, one in 20 people just being checked. Um, but what they did say is that you will no longer need to isolate when you're waiting for that random testing result. So ultimately, all just a little bit easier to come back and forth if you're either if you're traveling here or if you're going away and coming back. Yeah, overall, just so, so much easier. The other question I'm getting is, can I use can you still use the positive PCR test result? If you were one of those people who did get a positive test, um, you can use that to come back without even needing an antigen test. 
up to 180 days. So hold on to that PCR test because that's uh, that will be important. Arrive can will still be needed. Uh, that's the app that you fill out as well. So that just is part of the process as well. So it's not, you know, it's nowhere near what it was pre-COVID, but it is a lot less cumbersome and a lot cheaper than it was as of, you know, yesterday. And this will all take effect as, as of February 28th. Claire Duell, thank you so much for your advice and your time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, less than three weeks after a protest convoy rolled into Ottawa, the city's police chief is out. Peter slowly resigned today in the face of fierce criticism about his leadership and his forces handling of the ongoing blockade. It also comes after the federal government enacted the Emergencies Act and as an integrated command centre was put in place to allow RCMP and Ontario Provincial Police to assume command and control over policing the blockade. Today, the federal public safety minister says the Ottawa police chief's decision to leave was a personal one. The federal government had no role in the decision and that there are obviously relationships that exist between Chief Slowly and the Ottawa Police Board that are beyond um, the remit of the federal government here. Our focus is to continue to give the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial uh, Police and the RCMP all of the resources that they need to restore public order in the streets of Ottawa. Well, to look now at how things went so wrong so quickly for Ottawa's police chief is Wesley Wark. He's an expert on national security and intelligence issues and a senior fellow at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ben. I mean, it's, been a, it's, it's certainly been a chaotic three weeks for Ottawa police. Uh, yeah. were, you, were you surprised by today's development? And what do you think, what do you think led to this day? Not at all surprised. Um, I mean, I think it was high time for Chief Slowly, the Ottawa Police Chief, to resign. Um, his performance uh, over the course of the protest, I think, had been universally rated as dreadful um, from beginning to end. And I think, to be honest, um, uh, his resignation, uh, the way the way to it was paved by the federal government's declaration of the Emergencies Act and the new role that the RCMP will play. So, so that was a kind of um, prelude to the resignation, I think, clearly. You know, I think the the essential problem that Chief slowly uh, faced was that uh, he never managed to recover from a, a terrible policing intelligence failure, um, a set of assumptions uh, about the nature of the freedom convoys it was called and and its impact uh, on Ottawa. The the um, the trucks were effectively welcomed into the downtown. They were provided with safe routes of passage into the downtown, and led to a camp there. Uh, led allowed to a camp. There. They're, you know, really on the on the basis of some kind of pretty naive assumption that this protest convoy would be basically similar to the one that rolled through very briefly Ottawa in 2019, uh, that was fueled by by a different set of concerns. Uh, it, it came, it was noisy for a couple of days, and it left. And I think that was the the assumption for for reasons that kind of beggar the imagination uh, that um, that that prevailed in thinking about this convoy. And and having once suffered that intelligence failure and. And after all, the civic authorities and police authorities in Ottawa had two weeks' notice of of the the kind of amassing of this convoy and its departure from BC and gathering strength across the country from different different directions. So there was that initial intelligence failure. I think it paralyzed the police um, once the trucks had arrived downtown. 
And Chief Slowly, I, I don't think, had the kind of uh, vision or leadership capabilities, um, or perhaps even, and we're hearing uh, this recently, even necessarily the, the sort of support among the rank and file in the auto police uh, services to really deal with the, with the crisis. So he floundered from crisis to crisis. And I think there were two notable moments uh, in his leadership or non-leadership of, of the police in Ottawa that really stood out for me. One was what I would have to characterize. It's it's you know maybe not entirely fair, but but I would say he essentially waved a white flag early on in the protest and said that the auto police force was overwhelmed and and didn't have the resources to deal with the protest. Well, even if that was true, which I think many many people doubted, and certainly the um, emergency preparedness manager Bill Blair for the federal government you know directly called out. Even if that was true, it's not a message you want to send to the protesters. It it definitely emboldened them. And then more recently, uh, Chief Slowly went so far as to say that, you know, the protest was was extremely sophisticated and cleverly organized and, you know, was a gigantic opponent. Uh, again, I think that's I think that's simply not true, but it's also not the kind of signal you want to send to an already emboldened um, protest movement who believes it's as many of its signs proclaim that it's on the winning side of history or the right side of history. You know, he he really has you know, kind of encouraged the protest movement, unfortunately, through his pronouncements, it, it led him to to hire a PR firm to try and help him in his messaging, but but it didn't didn't save him and, and it shouldn't have. So, uh, you know, normally in midst of crisis, you wouldn't want to see a, a city police chief resign and, and leave the force in some degree of disarray and chaos. But the fact that the RCMP is, is stepping in through the federal government's assumption of, of essentially command and control of, of this protest, I think makes makes the transition to different leadership in the Ottawa police a, a little easier. Do you feel that in this situation that there were, that, that slowly was in some senses, even though he, his leadership was, was certainly questioned, was, do you feel like he, he was somehow left holding the bag in the early days when no one really could figure out what was happening at, at many levels of government? Yeah, I think I think I mean that may be a fair enough criticism. Um, but if left holding the bag, left holding it for far too too long, there was a lot of buck passing between different levels of government, between the the city of Ottawa, the you know province of Ontario, the federal government before the feds finally moved in with the Emergencies Act. But um, you know, on the other other side of the the coin, it, it was the police chief who should have been uh, ready to meet this demonstration with with appropriate um, with appropriate you know t- tactics and and means to control it and to uh, ensure that it it didn't take over the downtown core in the way that it did. So. As they say, I, I, you know, one striking failure led to ongoing paralysis from from which the Ottawa police was never able to recover. And, you know, I think that's done some lasting damage um, in terms of relations between the police and citizens of Ottawa. I think it's going to be hard for the police to restore a lot of trust uh, among Ottawa citizens. And, and we were reaching a dangerous pass in this city where... You know, um, uh, Ottawa residents were were trying to, um, you know, create counter protests and, and blockades of their own to prevent, um, you know, parts of the truck convoys from coming back and forth from downtown. You know, that was, that's a that's a recipe for disaster. And um, but it also showed uh, the extent to which the police capacity to really control the situation was was totally missing in action. So so something had to happen. And 
and I'm, you know, I think to be his, to his credit, uh, Chief slowly did, did the right thing and the honorable thing by resigning and recognizing that he had not provided the leadership required in this crisis. As far as invoking the Emergencies Act is the fact that the RCMP are now in charge here. Is that another, um, another something in the positive side for actually going ahead and doing this? Still supportive of the government's decision? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it, it provides the federal government with more policing resources, uh, and the RCMP will work alongside, obviously, the the OPP and the OPP officers. We don't know their exact numbers that have been sent to Ottawa and other protest uh, zones uh, to assist, as well as the Ottawa Civic Police and and other police forces as necessary. I think I think the 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 main impact of the RCMP, in addition to resources, is that because it's a federal police force and because it works closely with the national security and intelligence agencies in Ottawa, it should, alongside those agencies like CSIS and others, CBSA and um, you know other intelligence units of the federal government, it 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 should be able to must be able to come up with a much better granular intelligence picture of the nature of this protest. And that, that's going to be critical to ending the protest. It's, it's also going to be critical to using some of the tools the government has given itself in the Emergencies Act, not least the striking financial tools to block um, personal and corporate bank accounts, um, which is, I think, the most creative, in quotation marks, use of the Emergencies Act um, that, that we saw invoked yesterday. Wesley Work, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. This is quite the subject, and it's, an, it's a fascinating one. When I think of cloning animals, I think I only remember one. I go back about 25 years to Dolly the Cloned Sheep. Um, that was a huge story. I think I did stories on it. I think Dolly died when uh, she was about six or seven, maybe not quite. Well, things have changed a lot since then. Just how much? Well, for a relatively hefty fee, you can clone your dog or cat. A service offered by a U.S.-based company called Viagen, which started out cloning livestock. They do some of their work in Lethbridge, Alberta, um, but they do the cloning of the cats and dogs in upstate New York. Uh, they moved to household pets not that long ago. So who comes to them and why? And what is a cloned pet like? Joining me now is Viagen Client Service Manager, Milan Rodriguez, to tell us all about it. Welcome to the show. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. For those who, who may not know how far this may have progressed, I mean, I was thinking back to Dolly the sheep, and that goes back a, a long time, 25 years now. Um, how far along have we come in, in our ability to, to clone pets or clone animals? So you're right. I think the first thing that people think of when they hear the word cloning animals is Dolly the sheep, and that was 25 years ago. So as you can technology has really improved over the years. Viagen started out 20 years ago as a livestock cloning company. So we have cloned thousands of cattle and pigs and horses. And we started doing genetic preservation for pets 20 years ago. And that is the first step toward cloning. So just preserving cells from a pet that you may want to clone someday. So that was the only service that we offered for pets for quite some time. And we didn't start pet cloning until 2015. And our company really shifted focus from livestock over to pets. And since 2015, we've been, we've been cloning dogs and cats, and we continue to clone horses as well. And uh, the service is growing, as you can imagine. Um, pet owners, our, our pets are our family. 
And so it's, it's a very big difference from cloning livestock to cloning pets. And it's, it's just a, an amazing experience. Because for, I mean, for people who may not know this, live, cloning livestock is common, right? That's right. I would say it's widely done in the livestock industry. You know, they the livestock industry was um, one of the first ones to use embryo transfer. So they've been using assisted reproductive technology for years. So it is quite more common in livestock. And pet owners are just really finding out about this. The first cloned dog was done before we did it. It was cloned in a research setting many, many years ago. Um, so it's just really shifting now to commercial cloning. And uh, it's still this little secret that not many people know about. So it's it's definitely a growing business. So, so who, who are your clients? Without naming them, I mean, in general terms, who, who comes to see you? Right. So the bulk of our clients are just people who really love their pets. I mean, we all love our pets, right? But there are certain pets that we have a special emotional connection with, and they're more like our family than a pet. Uh, A lot of our clients are ones that may not have ever had children of their own. So their pets are definitely more like their children. And those clients tend to have um, those funds available for cloning because they're not paying for a college education or a wedding and things like that. So they have this extra income that they could utilize for the actual cloning. Is there, I mean, when you clone a pet, and this is going to sound, it might sound like a, like a bit of a dumb question, but how similar is the new pet to the old pet? So that's a really good question, actually. And the best way to think about what a cloned animal is, is it is a genetic identical twin. So just like human identical twins that are born at the same time, a clone is an identical twin that's born years apart. So it's really fascinating when you think about it that way. It's not that one embryo is splitting into two, like in conventional um uh, identical twins, you know, like that's, that's how that happens with identical twins. Um, but the DNA from that original pet is put into an egg and essentially a cloned embryo is made. And then um, that embryo goes into a surrogate mother and that surrogate will gestate the embryo and will give birth to the puppy or kitten and they nurse it and they nurture that puppy or kitten until it's weaned. So the dog may have a different person. I mean, could ostensibly like identical twins can be very different people. The um, the dogs can have different personalities than say the one that they're cloned from. That That's right. And that's something that we do try to manage our client expectations. We're not um, reincarnating the animal. It is a genetic twin. So the potential is there for the dog or cat to have the same personality, just depending on what other environmental factors may influence that. So personality has a genetic component, but also an environmental component. We do know that um, temperament and intelligence have a very strong genetic component. So those are things that we see the most similar in cloned animals are the intelligence and temperament. I understand that some of your clients too are people who actually have pets who let's call it what they are nowadays in the Instagram world. They have famous pets. Right. So that's sort of a new category um, that we're shifting into. And um, you, you are seeing more and more of these pet influencers. So clients where their their pet is the Instagram star. And I myself have a cat who has his own Instagram page. He doesn't have a lot of followers yet. Um, 
But, um, you know, we, we love seeing pets on the internet, right? It's very fascinating. And um, so what do you do when that pet that we love to look at every day is gone? So I think that that's an excellent application of this technology. So in a way, in that situation, you are sort of replacing that pet in a way, but it's a little bit of a different version of that original pet. So it's very interesting to see the similarities and the differences between the original and the clone. But I will say that, yes, more and more of the, the Insta-famous uh, pets um, are, are coming toward cloning. I'm speaking with Milayan Rodriguez, Viagen's client service manager. Viagen is a company that provides pet cloning services to uh, to customers. I haven't asked you how much it costs. Uh, I think everyone would be curious to know how much it costs to, to clone a pet these days. So it, the cost varies by species. So to clone a dog, it's fifty thousand dollars, and US, to clone right, a, US, you, right? that's right, fifty thousand US dollars, mm-hmm. and thirty five thousand US dollars to clone a cat. What is the most sort of not to get into the dog cat debate, but are, are do you get more dogs or cats? We do have more uh, dog clients than than cat clients. Yes, we we do. I'd say it's probably about seventy five percent dog and twenty five percent cat at this point. When, when you look at, I mean, there's always ethical issues around cloning, and I'm sure you've answered these questions before. But but when when a when a customer comes in to ask you about ethical considerations, they're worried about cloning the, the pet that they that they've owned for so long. Um, what do you tell them? So yes, so we do have clients that have that concern. And that's certainly understandable. We love our pets, and we want to make sure that they're treated with the utmost care. And we want to make sure that all those animals involved in the cloning are treated with the utmost care. And they most certainly are. Um, you do hear some horror stories about cloning. You know, if you if you Google pet cloning, you see some negative things out there. And a lot of that is stemming from um, older information from 25 years ago when Dolly was cloned and it took numerous attempts, um, many, many embryo transfers, but it was a brand new technology. So with any technology, things improve and things get better. And that's certainly where pet cloning is today. So it, it only takes a few rounds of embryo transfers, sometimes just one embryo transfer produces the puppy. And the surrogate mothers, so there, there has to be a surrogate mother involved for cloning. We're not, we're not able to just take these embryos in, a, in the dish, in the lab. So we do have to have another animal that's involved in that. So we certainly do want to make sure that that surrogate mom is treated wonderfully. And she is. Um, They are a very important part of the cloning process. So um, for this to be successful, we have to have a happy and healthy surrogate mother. And so um, they're treated very well. They live in a nice environment. Um, We've got a 24 hour a day, seven day a day, seven day a a week care staff that takes care of these dogs and treats them like they're their own. So they're very well loved. How are the surrogates chosen? So they're mainly chosen on size and temperament. Uh, We work with a breeder who provides the surrogates. uh, So there is no genetic interaction from the surrogate to the cloned puppy. So it does not have to be the same breed. Um, We do want to choose a size surrogate that's going to be adequate for the puppy. So if we're cloning a Chihuahua, we're going to use a small surrogate. And if we're cloning a Great Dane, we'll use a larger surrogate. Where do you see this going from here? I mean, right now it's, as you mentioned, $50,000 US for dogs, 35,000 US for cats. Do you see this technology becoming more, more popular, less expensive as it, as it improves or I mean, as it is refined? Mm-hmm. 
So I certainly do see that cost coming down. Um, Our initial step toward cloning, that genetic preservation service, is what 90% of our customers are doing right now because that cost to clone is quite high at the moment. So they're saving those cells for um, someday in the future when that price may come down. And we expect that it will. As I mentioned, we've been cloning horses for 20 years, and the cost for horse cloning has decreased from 165000 down to 85000 So it's still quite high, but much less than it was before because we have refined the technology and developed techniques now that we couldn't do 20 years ago. So that's where I see the dog and cat cloning headed. I think that it will go down at some point. It's never going to be something that is inexpensive. Um, so, but I do see the price coming down in the future. I don't know the answer to this question, but is it, is it, is it legal in all 50 States? I, I don't even know what the, what the jurisdictional implications in Canada would be. I imagine with livestock, it's fine. I just don't know if we have rules for pet, for, for domestic pets. So we have clients from all over the world, and I don't know of any country where pet cloning is illegal. Uh, So we certainly have clients in Canada. Uh, We just had a puppy that went back home to Canada just last week. Um, So that was the sweet little uh, puppy that you may see more and more of. But um, yes, it's certainly legal in all of the U.S. and Canada and and most other countries as far as I'm aware. Malay Rodriguez, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you you so much for sharing uh, what Viagen does. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you. 